Okay, guys, so today we'll begin with the Great Depression. Uh, finished it up on Wednesday. Uh, and then again, maybe Friday, just play some Kahoot or something to review some of these ideas. Uh, and then we're on our way to spring break, right? Uh, again, as you saw in the announcement, remember this week, right? It's just a module eight quiz. Uh, again, I also mentioned there about it being a great time to catch up on your work because, you know, uh, this week is a, bit, a little bit light on the work. Gives you a great opportunity. If you're missing something, please get that in, catch up. Because in the next, you know, month or so, uh, I mean, this class is, well, I mean, you still have a bit, you still have a good chunk of time. But, you know, as soon as you know it, it'll be you know, another test, right? The rest of the signature assignment, your final, it'll all happen very, very fast as we get towards the end. All right, guys, so the name kind of this chapter section is FDR and the New Deal. Of course, FDR is standing for, anybody know the name of this president that we know with just his initials? Anybody know who's FDR? Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Absolutely, yeah. So largely considered one of the most popular presidents ever, one of the most influential. And hopefully you get a good sense of a little bit why today, probably more so next time we talk on Wednesday. And then the New Deal refers to the program and platform that he and the Democrats kind of established uh, to try to kind of, you know, deal with some of the problems of the Great Depression, right? High unemployment, um, problems on many fronts. So, you know, part of the, the crazy thing about the New Deal and the Depression is the impact it still has on us to this day from things like Social Security to certain, you know, welfare benefits, unemployment benefits, you know, that we just heard in the current news, uh, you know, a little clip and stuff like that, and huge, huge effects. And even locally, I'll touch on. I'll try to touch on some of the ones locally for different projects and stuff. How they impact uh, us uh, to this day. Uh, Alright, guys. So here, just to open, I have a little bit of a kind of like a uh, you know situation, and just thought we talked through it just for a couple of minutes. It won't take too long. But it says, imagine yourself uh, 15 years from today, right in your workplace, hopefully your career, or really close to getting to where you want to be in your career, uh, when you receive a notification that you're being let go, right? That you're going to be you know, not necessarily fired, but, you know, you're not going to be, uh, you're going to be let go of your career soon, right, or your job. So second part of the question says, uh, what actions would you take? Where could you go for assistance, right, and elaborate? Now, remember, I'm asking this question in a current, like in a modern day context, right, present day. So again, some of these are pretty obvious. I know it's kind of like a big sort of, you know, meta question in this and that. But uh, part of this is I'm trying to illustrate to you, hopefully, uh, and, you know, if some of you have experienced this with maybe some of your family and stuff like that. I want you to understand, like, how shocking this can be for, you know, for an adult. Like, you know, as you grow up and as you kind of mature, you realize that, you know, like, as you grow up, sometimes some of the fears or some of the things you worry about are kind of ridiculous, right? Like, some of the things you're scared of and things like that. But, you know, when you grow up, for instance, you know, losing a job, I know sometimes, you know, as when we're kids, we're kind of insulated from some of that stuff. Um, I mean, it's one of the most frightening things, right? I know uh, myself, right? I mean, my job is what allows me to, right, pay for my home, right? What's, what allows me to uh, do things with my family, right? And st stuff like that. It's really, really important. Um, does anybody know what, what actions would you take? Anybody? What are some general things that you could do? You know, they let you know that, hey, this week will be your last week at work. Very, very scary, right? But what could a person do? Anyone know? What are their options? I mean, obviously, the, the easiest thing to do is, or not easiest thing, it's probably the hardest thing to do, right? But if you lose your job, what's, I mean, it only holds to reason that what should you do as soon as possible? Find another one? Yeah, absolutely, right? So that's, of course, you know, uh, first thing, right? You automatically try to start looking like crazy for one. Um, what else? What other options do you have? What could you do? Uh, apply for unemployment. Yeah, absolutely, right? Apply with the state for unemployment. 
So there, you know, it gets into sometimes the details of, you know, why you were let go and all that could depend and it could, you know, change it. And of course, you're not going to get the same money you were, right, probably given your career, but, you know, at least maybe to hold you over. Um, you know, in personal life, right, you may be reexamining where you live, right, how much you're paying for rent, all that stuff would need to be thought about. And the key thing is, uh, you know, especially when it comes to the unemployment stuff, like that's what I'm hopefully hoping you can kind of take away, especially from today is, you know, whereas we have that kind of today, right? And um, that really didn't exist in 1929, 1932, 1933, 34. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, what we know is these kind of social services or unemployment benefits and all that stuff is basically kind of a byproduct of the experience of a lot of Americans during the Great Depression. So that's the ultimate sad thing, you know, is in a little while we're talking about unemployment rates being crazy high. And it's not like people aren't looking for jobs. They're looking, they're looking and looking and looking, but there's just, the jobs aren't there. You know, basically what happens is the government has to create jobs and put people to work. So, you know, again, this is kind of the ultimate thing. We've had these nasty depressions before, but never for this long and never to this degree. And, it, you know, it causes a whole total transformation in some government policies and stuff like that. That's kind of the key thing with the Great Depression. Uh, any questions or anything before we get going? Y'all are okay? Again, but uh, again, this is kind of the beginning of when government starts to become, take a really active hand in labor and, and the, you know, um, benefits and all that stuff. All right, guys, so what are the causes of the Great Depression? So in a nutshell, there's a few. And I'm going to go to the chat. I know I don't usually use the chat when I'm kind of lecturing, but uh, I thought I'd change it up a little bit for today. Or are you guys? All right, guys, so in a nutshell, there's a few problems. Like if you're taking a, a big a macro look at the event of the Great Depression, the biggest kind of issue is overproduction. In that, you know, what's been going on through the 1920s is hopefully you remember that it's a really good economic time. Cars are selling like crazy. Uh, all this stuff, right? Consumer goods, appliances selling well, radios selling well. But, you know, especially in 1927, I think that was the first hiccup where, like, car sales went down a bit. And there's some other kind of, like, little allusions to maybe there are some issues here. But then it actually kind of picks up pretty good. And then, you know, especially beginning in 1929, you know, the, the kind of overall problem was, and what a lot of economists have gone and kind of look back at the, you know, decade of the 20s, is, again, all these goods are being produced and all these goods are being produced. And it's almost like the assumption that, hey, the economy will just keep growing, keep growing, keep expanding, keep growing, keep, keep going. And, you know, there was bound to be a time period where, where it couldn't really sustain that growth anymore. And a lot of people point to wages. That's one way to look at it where, you know, people during the 1920s did earn more money than they had before. But the wage increase didn't necessarily keep up with the production of consumer goods. So too many things being produced. So, you know, eventually what that leads to is, uh, you know, oversupply, right, in the, you know, for consumer goods. And then, you know, basically each of those areas, right, whether it be cars, radios, whatever, they have to close down, like factories and all that, right? That's the only way you're going to limit and prevent overproduction. So people being let go in multiple industries, right, the railroads, the cars, all that. And, you know, to, to just give you an idea of how sensitive the whole system is, right, like if you have, you know, a massive industry letting go of tens of thousands of workers, well, now those workers, right, can't pay their bills. So, you know, some of those bills were for appliances, were for this other area, that other area. Now they can't pay for their housing, right? So it has a big kind of domino effect that, that really kind of spreads out throughout many aspects of the economy during the 20s. 
but you know at its core overproduction is the key now other more kind of you know specific factors are things like uh, something called speculation on the stock market so the same way people used to use credit to buy uh, goods right like a fridge or a car or any of those things uh, people were using uh, or doing something called stock speculation where they could buy a stock for by paying only 10% of its value. And this was really popular in the 1920s. And now the, the way this kind of works and why it's kind of okay for a while anyway, is if stocks are gaining value, you don't feel it as much. Like, you know, because they're gaining and gaining value at such a high or rapid rate, you don't feel that, you know, uh, how do you say, the use of that sort of credit so much. But when they start devaluing, right, or losing that value, what starts to happen with a lot of like people playing the stock market and all that is they get called in to pay those, you know, what they owe on these stocks because they're losing value. And, you know, and then that's why you have what's, you know, in 1929, the two or the big massive sell off where, you know, the stock market loses tens of billions of dollars and all that stuff. And again, what that's happening is basically more people are getting rid of their stock and less people are buying. And how that affects companies, you know, down the road is companies don't see that influx of cash that they had before. So where, you know, if you're one of these, you know, massive companies, you know, you maybe need to consider closing a factory, closing, you know, whatever part of your business. So again, the whole thing can get out of hand relatively quickly. And a good kind of like test for a lot of this stuff, guys, is and we've seen it during the pandemic, too. Right. Like when you start seeing the big companies hurting, like, you know, General Electric, Coca-Cola, you know, Chevrolet, like ones who have been in business for like, you know, hundred years or you know decades and decades that's where things get a little bit scary and so of course this is very apparent because some some big companies uh, such as uh, some of the ones I just mentioned during the 30s took a big hit and uh, you know part of these are some of the issues uh, other things that were going on here we got that we got that we got that just making sure um, banking practices of the day were also a big problem Whoa, sorry I cannot spell practices uh, so the issue with banking practices, uh, do y'all, you know, I don't want to get too bogged down on this and I don't want to take too much time, but at least five minutes maybe real quick. But do y'all know how banks make money? Like how do they make money? You know, in general, a bank is a place where we trust, right, to put our cash and hold it for us, right? It's where we cash our checks and other things. But how does a bank actually make money? Like a little mom and pop bank or anybody know? What do they do with people's money that makes them money? There's like interest and then service fees. Yeah, absolutely. Like all those little things. So let's just say, you know, the whatever, 16 of us or whatever, 15 of us that are in here, uh, we were a small town and there was only one bank in the town. Well, the way the bank makes money is, you know, let's say most of us or half of us have savings accounts in the bank, right? So we put a little bit of money from every check or whatever in the bank. And then, um, you know, someone else new moves into town and they go to the bank and they want a loan for a house, well, the bank says, okay, um, you know, you, you know, they ask them all the whatever the questions and all that paperwork, all that stuff. And, uh, you know, they lend that person the money to buy a home, right, to build their home and all that. Well, the bank is going to make money by, you know, loaning the money and charging interest. But, you know, the funny way about the, the way the bank works is they technically loaned out everybody else's money, right? They might have had to put up some resources of their own. But that's literally what they do. They deal in money, right? So the same money they're holding for 200 people is the same money they could be loaning out for a car, for a house, for whatever. The troubling thing at the time that this all kind of went down, the late 20s, is banks were also allowed to do uh, something called leveraging money. And what this was is when you played the stock market. 
And of course, no one had any idea that the stock market was about to go in the tank for and lose like, you know, almost a third of its value or some ridiculous thing over, you know, that year in 1929. And uh, guess what? Banks are going to lose out a ton, a ton of money. So the problem now is, you know, that later on causes what's called a run on banks. And when you have a run on banks, that means everybody starts to show up to the bank and starts to demand their money. I want to empty my account. I want all my $5,000, all my $2,000 out of the bank. And uh, anybody know the problem with, with that? Does, do banks keep all of your money or all of our money with them or do they not keep it with them? Anybody know? They don't. Yeah, they don't. Uh, and especially during this time, they were not even required. They had to have a, only a very small amount of it. So that's what's called the run on the banks. And eventually the banks fail in the thousands because they cannot fulfill their promises. They can't give people the money that they, you know, that they were supposed to hold and all that. It's kind of crazy. Again, this doesn't really exist anymore. Today, your bank accounts, your parents' bank accounts, they're insured by the Fed, by the, the federal government uh, because of this. Because before, it was just literally you taking a risk. I trust this bank. I put my 20000 in there. We're good. But, you know, no one had any idea that it would all go to, you know, go to ruins right during the beginning of the Great Depression. It's a kind of, kind of crazy, kind of wild how this stuff happened. Uh, good. So, again, these are some of the key elements that kind of promote the cause of it. But the big one is overproduction. But all these are elements that made it, you know, rough and, and you know, caused a lot of problems. All right. Um, so effects. So part of it is what I just said. Thousands of bank failures. Thousands of people laid off, right? So many, many unemployed, millions really unemployed. Um, of failure of businesses, right? Thousands as well. And, uh, you know, just incredible poverty we see during uh, the Great Depression. Uh, there's also some interesting kind of studies done as far as like the role of minorities during the Depression. Uh, some people believe minorities, had, it sounds bad, but that minorities had an easier time adjusting during the Great Depression. Does anybody think they know why or why would people say that? Some historians or some, you know, authors or experts. It's kind of a weird reasoning, but why do you think some minorities would have an easier time adjusting to the Great Depression? Think of like, again, you know, you're not having a job, all that, right? Unfortunately, what has been the truth for a lot of minorities, right? African-Americans, Hispanics in the country's history. Do they, they're used to it. Yeah, like they're used to those, that ex, those extreme levels of poverty and stuff like that. So uh, that's an interesting kind of take. There's also another really rough way to look at it where... You know, because jobs are so incredibly precious, competition for those jobs, even they may be the worst jobs and very low paying, become even more fierce. And so you know, to give you an idea, in the 1930s, there's a massive Mexican repatriation project, basically a massive deportation of Mexican workers uh, that occurs in this country because of that, you know, that rivalry or that competition for jobs being that much more fierce uh, during the 1930s. Um, so again, we'll, we'll touch a lot on the legacy, um, especially later on in the second part of the lecture. But uh, the effects are everywhere, basically, for the Great Depression. And, you know, the tough thing students always say, you know, I've heard some students say, oh, it only lasted a few years or this and that. You know, the only thing that's going to cure the Depression is World War II. In a lot of ways, you know, everything else kind of before that is kind of trying to deal with the symptoms or some of the problems of the Depression. And it's not until we get fully kind of mobilized for World War II and get people back to work, that it really kind of deals with, uh, you know, some of those other, those core problems or some of the big picture problems. 
All right, guys, this visual so shows you the levels of unemployment throughout the kind of whole crisis. So here you see the stock market crash known as, you know, Black Thursday or Black Tuesday. And our unemployment was right about a million people, which is getting really, really good and really low levels of unemployment. Its peak during the Great Depression is here about 1933 at about 12 million uh, or roughly about one in four Americans looking for work could not find work. And that's the highest in our nation's history. Uh, to give you an idea, of course, as ugly as the pandemic has been and all that, um, anybody want to guess what's max unemployment or what's the unemployment rate? Uh, but I think it was the summer of 2020 that it got the worst. Do you think worse than 25% or less than 25%? Anyone? Worse. Uh, no, no. It got to, I think, like 13 was the highest got, it got. So to give you an idea, again, as bad as it has been, and it has been bad during this pandemic, you know, basically double that if you want to talk about the unemployment rate during the Great Depression. Um, so pretty fascinating. Uh, again, there is a uh, period of again, some good things going on and then a bad hiccup with this recession, 1938. And then again, here's you can, where you can see the sharp decline, right? When World War II begins, we begin aiding the Allies, kind of like we did in World War I. And then again, when the U.S. officially enters full force in 1942, that's where the unemployment rate gets back down to about one million or so. So again, this is kind of the, you know, see the mountains or the peaks and valleys uh, of the Great Depression. All right, guys, so opposing or fighting the Depression, so what's going to happen? So remember, as much as FDR is a big part of this, and he is, um, he was not the president at the time that the Depression broke out, right, in the, the fall of the stock market and all that. It was a guy named Herbert Hoover, a Republican, that was, remember, a part of a long line of Republicans, uh, beginning with Harding, then it was Coolidge, then Hoover uh, voted in, in 1928. So for Hoover, you know, this timing is brutal. I mean, you know, it's his... Uh, Later, it's, you know, he's inaugurated in January of 1929. And then, uh, you know, the situation with the stock market happens in late October. And now he's dealing with this thing. And in general, the kind of consensus with Hoover is just way underestimated how bad this was really going to get. Now, in a way, I kind of, you know, kind of feel maybe a little bit bad or how can you blame him? Because no one knew this was going to be like the worst, you know, economic situation, you know, perhaps ever in the country's history. And no one, you know, how do we say I mean, the signs were there, but no one knew exactly what the role of government was supposed to be in this, right? Like, no one's ever dealt with anything this bad when it came to the economy. So Hoover, you know, basically does do a few things. Like, he does try to institute some programs, like, to help farmers, but it's very small, very minimal. His whole program was called volunteerism, or uh, sometimes there's another name for it. A voluntary cooperation, I believe is what he called it in some of his addresses. But it was, in a way, a little bit silly, but it was kind of like, you know, help your neighbor, uh, rely on your church, rely on charitable organizations, right? Like the Red Cross, like the Salvation Army to provide shelter, food, whatever. And, you know, by the time we get to a few years, right, like into his term, people are kind of done. They don't want to hear it anymore. Um, you know, they can't find work, period. Um, you know, what they're starting to ask is, why isn't the government doing more? Why aren't they helping this issue more? And addressing these problems head on. So hence why you'll see here in a little while when I show you a short video that a lot of the really poor shanty towns that popped up all over the country, you know, these are like really like temporary housing basically because people get thrown out of their homes or evicted. They're, they were called Hoovervilles to poke fun of the president. And then the big kind of blow to his public image will occur in the summer of 1932. 
And what happened in the summer of 1932 is a situation or an event known as the Bonus March, sometimes also called the Bonus Army. So basically what had happened is uh, in the mid-1920s, uh, the Congress passed a, like a benefit for World War I veterans. And it was basically going to give them you know, a pretty decent payment for their service in World War I. But the payment they were not going to get until like the mid-1940s. So they were going to get it way down the road. Well, what's going on is because so many people can't find jobs, they've lost their homes, um, they begin to organize and demonstrate and then march on Washington, D.C. And what they're demanding is, hey, that payment that we're supposed to get in 20 years or uh, 15 years, uh, we want it now. Now's the time we need help. Now's the time you can help us, right? We're not working, all this stuff. So Hoover uh, probably reacts the worst way he could. Uh, he calls out uh, basically the U.S. military to disperse of, you know, this bonus army, these World War I veterans. And you can just think of that, how brutal that is, right? Like you served your country, you fought hard in World War I, and now your fellow soldiers or, you know, the current soldiers are clearing you out of Washington, D.C. and sending you on your way right back home. Some are arrested, all this stuff. And, you know, that kind of spells the end for Hoover that, you know, he is just – you know, too little, too late, right, basically, to deal with the problems of the Great Depression. So Hoover, you know, and the, and the Republicans will take a big hit from this, uh, this stuff. All right, so who's going to pop in, sort of take his place? Well, this is where FDR comes into play, right? So Franklin D. Roosevelt is uh, from a pretty affluent family from New York. Uh, you know, he grew up very wealthy. Give you an idea, like, during his adolescence and all that, his family, like, would send him to, you know, he'd spend your summers in, like, Europe and stuff like that. So that's how much money the Roosevelt's come from. And he is of distant relation to Teddy. So there is a you know, fam familial connection there. But uh, you know, some other things about his personal life. Uh, anybody know what ailment he had? He fell very ill in 1921. Actually makes him handicapped or disabled for most of his life. Anybody know what he had? Any from books or movies or anything? Thank God we don't struggle with this anymore, right? You all heard of something called polio? Polio, sound familiar? So he suffered from that and basically couldn't walk without assistance for most of his adult life, including his time as New York governor and, of course, later president of the United States. And uh, the key thing with Roosevelt and his ascension to the White House is he kind of knew the, you know, he knew what Americans wanted to hear at that time, right? Hoover was inactive, whatever, lazy, didn't do anything. Roosevelt was not going to make that same mistake. And, uh, you know, made it very clear. That's why the New Deal is such a famous name, such a famous policy you hear pop up time and time again. You know, the idea is I'm creating a new deal for the American people to deal with this depression, right? To deal with the sadness and all this terrible despair going on from this bad economic situation. And that's going to be a really, really powerful thing. Um, before I go on to kind of this little section here, um, you can also see what he's going to use, right? Remember, there's no TV back then. So how do people get their news and stuff? Talked about this last week. Anybody know? What do people listen to for entertainment, for news, all that stuff? Anyone, anyone? Radio, right? So he's going to usher in something called, uh, they're going to be called his fireside chats. Because uh, in a very, basically a very conversational tone, uh, FDR is going to kind of update the country uh, when he's elected president, about the situation, about what they're trying to do, what kind of laws they're trying to pass. And people really appreciated that, right? Where Hoover was kind of dismissive, not taking it seriously. You know, the president now is almost giving like weekly sort of mini little press conference or pressers 
updating on the issues and things like that. So really, really powerful. Um, all right, the first 100 days, really, really important. Um, in a lot of ways, you know, you could draw some analogies, a little bit anyway, to uh, the 100 days like under Biden, right? Like part of the reason the stimulus thing is so huge for Biden and the Democrats is, hey, you promised to help out, right? You promised to try to fix some of these issues that were uh, a lot of, you know, whatever American families are struggling with or people. And so, you know, it's seen as maybe them fulfilling their promise. Same thing for FDR. You know, he made a lot of promises. And in these first three months, you, cannot def- you can definitely not say that Roosevelt was lazy or didn't do anything. They passed, like, I think, like 15 major pieces of law or ed- legislation during this time. So, you know, it comes in and kind of says and does the right things. And people, it's why he's going to be immensely popular during the Great Depression. What some people argue, and this is a valid argument, is that despite, you know, all the actions and all that, if we go back to this, right, um, unemployment doesn't get all that great. Uh, you know, you still have some big problems. But, you know, a lot of people somewhere in the middle say, well, it doesn't matter. Like, just FDR restoring confidence in government, restoring confidence in other institutions was kind of the big thing. You know, the idea is, like, you kind of needed a leader to acknowledge, to at least say the right things during the time, right? Even though, again, in the end, remember, it's not until World War II that we get out of this depression. All right, guys, just as an example, um, one of the big things done during that first 100 days or three months, uh, he ushered in something called the banking holiday. And so to give you an idea, you know, what happened is what I told you, a run on the banks, and I'll show you a little video about that here in a little while, is where people were going to the banks to take out their money, and there was no money to take out. So the banks all over the nation are in crisis. And in the end, about 10,000 end up failing, period, and going bankrupt. And what that means, of course, people lose their savings, right? They lose all that money they had in those places. Well, uh, what's done in, you know, I want to say it's late March of 1933, is something called the banking holiday. So no president has really ever done anything like this. And for sure, no president has showed this much power probably since, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln. But uh, FDR and uh, the executive, they order all the banks in the country closed, And uh, some are closed for only like a week. Some are closed for a few weeks. But basically in that time period, um, what they do are they save the banks that were like savable, right? They give them an injection of money and resources. And then the banks that were in really bad shape, that there was was no possibility of saving, those banks are kind of left to die and to, to go away. So the idea with this and what a lot of people give FDR and his administration a ton of credit for is you know, perhaps that could have gotten a lot worse because if you just keep allowing the banks to fail and don't help out with federal money, um, you know, the whole banking system maybe collapses. But here by doing this, and again, it was a lot of it was kind of public perception, right? Well, the president's, you know, literally closing all the banks for, for a while to reorganize, to inject federal money, you know, helps restore confidence. It helps restore people's belief in banks, that they're safe, that they're secure. And that was an important thing during that time. Uh, some other aspects of the recovery relief uh, parts of this. Um, there's some uh, efforts in place for something called, uh, uh, what's the name of it? I always get the name mixed up. But one of them is called the Agricultural Adjustment Agency. And basically, you know, to, to give you an idea of how crazy things get and almost socialistic some of this stuff gets, um, basically the government undergoes a, a plan to pay farmers to take their crops out of rotation. So you can have this weird program where farmers are being paid to not grow anything. Now, you might ask a good question, right? Why on earth would you do that? Why would you pay farmers not to grow anything? Well, it kind of has to do with crops and the way it works, right? Does anybody remember what happens if you have oversupply of something, right? Does money go up or does it go down? 
like how much you get for something. If there's too much of it, right? Does the money go up or money go down? You have oversupply. Anyone know? You have too much of something, does the price go up or go down? Think of like after Halloween, after Christmas, after Valentine's Day. What's on clearance? Anybody know? All the candy and all that junk, right? Because, you know, literally what's going on is Walmart or HEB or whatever store, it doesn't matter. They're, you know, they ordered so many candies or whatever, costumes for Halloween, all that. They didn't sell. So they're going to try to sell them at a discount right after because they know people aren't as interested in those goods anymore. Well, the kind of the same thing with farming, right, is in farming in general, you had overproduction in many areas. So the idea is if you pay farmers not to farm, it reduces supply and it will help st 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 provide more stability to price. Not only that, what was going on throughout the country also was over farming. So by taking crops out of rotation, the idea is we go pay the farmer also to uh, you know, restore fertility to the land, to restore the nutrients and all that to the land. So pretty radical stuff. And uh, you know, uh, the government paying farmers not to, not to farm, basically, or some of them. Um, and again, there's other efforts at this. There's a, you know, eventually, they're going to found a group, we'll talk more about this next time, but called the Works Progress Administration, where basically the government's going to straight up hire people to do jobs, to do work. There's a group called the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, where young men from, I think, anywhere from like 16 to 25 were hired to travel the country and build roads, um, plant trees. A lot of the work was done for like national parks and all that during that time, too, to try to create some activity and some more, um, you know, um, basically just giving people work and trying to give them a paycheck and stuff. Uh, good. Anybody have any questions on this stuff? So, again, main thing, Hoover kind of didn't do too much or did too little too late. And, you know, FDR has a plan. A lot of people argue the validity or how powerful the plan really was, but it kind of doesn't matter because, you know, he's doing something, right? He's showing a little bit more reaction and responsiveness to the people and to what they dealt with and stuff. Uh, one last thing I was going to mention just to make a connection to kind of local history. Um, <laughs> if you uh, think of Brownsville, for instance, does anybody have any family that works at the Port of Brownsville? Or you all know of the Port of Brownsville, right, of course? Yes? No? Maybe? Some of you? So the Port of Brownsville goes back to one of these uh, New Deal projects where, uh, you know, Cameron County was given uh, X amount of money and Brownsville being the largest, of course, city in Cameron County. Um, you know, building a port was seen as being a big boost to the economy locally. So the port project and Port of Brownsville goes back basically to the New Deal to uh, this time period in U.S. history. Uh, some other things, uh, it's also around this time in U.S. history where you see a lot of uh, towns trying to attract a lot of tourists and tourism. And the valley is no different, right? Uh, mostly agricultural and stuff like that. But, you know, basically it's from the Great Depression that we have Charro Days being established as our kind of local festival, right, here in Brownsville and the surrounding area. Uh, but there's, you know, if you don't know, every valley town has like their little thing, right? Like Los Fresnos has a rodeo. Uh, the oldest one is in Mission. Uh, I think it's called the Citrus Festival or something like that. Uh, that one is older than Charro Days by like a year or two. Uh, barely. But again, it's all about trying to get people to spend money, trying to get them to visit, right? Travel to places. That was the goal and how they tried to, you know, attract and get people to, uh, to bring in money. All right, guys, uh, this uh, last stretch kind of focuses on a lot of uh, images and stuff like that, but to reinforce a lot of the things I've just spoken about. 
So uh, hopefully you can see here, right, this is just sheer numbers of bank failures. So you can see in uh, 1929, we had 659 banks fail. Then it goes up, right, more than doubling in 1930. Then it gets closer to 1,500 or so in 1931. Then, you know, over 2,000 in 1932. And then in 1933, over 5,000 banks fail. So this gives you an idea of how brutal and how, uh, you know, greatly this affected our banking institutions in this country. And again, keep in mind, like, before this point, banks were like independent little businesses, just like little restaurants, whatever. You know, you had all these little mom and pop banks that serve the purpose. They give loans. They do this. They do that. But, you know, of course, after this is when the government's going to come in and really heavily regulate what banks do, what they're allowed to do and not do. So, um, you know, kind of fascinating in that sense. But a whole lot of bank failures during this time. Any questions or concerns? Everybody's okay with this? Yes? No? Maybe? All right. All right, guys, this is another part of the first 100 days. Uh, so remember, those first three months or so when FDR took over. Um, does anybody want to get So this whole project is sometimes called the Tennessee Valley Project or the Tennessee Valley Authority is what it's known as. Or sometimes it might be just called TVA. But this is a good example of what, you know, like FDR and what the New Deal was all about. Um, does anybody want to guess what these little red bars are all over? Again, they're all, we use these things on rivers. They're pretty hard to make but they provide uh, sometimes fresh water, they provide electricity. And we have one kind of in the Northwest Valley, way up there. Anybody know what these things are? We build along rivers? Dams? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, this whole project was a, a proposal to build over 15 dams in seven different states, I think it is, along this part of the Southeast US. Now you might think, okay, what's a big deal and why is everything here? Well, the idea is, you know, in the, in the end, I think this project's going to cost like at least $2 billion. And it's going to put hundreds, if not a few thousands of people to work building these dams and building the power plants that they'll support. So, you know, the idea is kind of like a double whammy, right? Like you deal with upgrading a lot of the infrastructure in a very rural part of the American South. And you're putting, you know, again, at least maybe a few thousand people to work. And, you know, the work pays fairly well. So that's kind of the goal. And this is pretty common, and it's a good like, case study of the entire, uh, you know, a lot of the New Deal, right? Like even here, building the port of Brownsville, right? Like that's expensive, right? To build, you know, a man-made canal from, uh, you know, like where the jetties are and all that, that was always somewhat of a natural feature. But, uh, you know, to, to dig, you know, a man-made, you know, canal river that's 30, 35 feet deep, right, and build it, you know, what is it, at least 15 miles inland. That is not easy. That takes a lot of money and a lot of resources, and a lot of manpower also. So these projects kind of all over the country were some of what the government did to put people back to work, to try to get them um, jobs and get them steady pay and stuff like that. Um, you know, even the, of course, the biggest dam, right, the Hoover Dam, an example of that even uh, to some extent. All right, guys, and here's a presidential election map of 1932. So this shows you basically the people's reaction, right, when it came down to the ballot, when it came down to the vote, that, again, you have Franklin D. Roosevelt, right, the man that's promising the New Deal, promising to do something about the Depression, getting close to 23 million votes. And then Hoover, um, I mean, it doesn't do terrible. He still gets, you know, close to 16 million votes, but especially when it came to dominating parts of the country, I mean, it was, you know, not really that close. It only maybe, what, six states, five states, right, for Hoover, and all the rest voted for FDR for president, right? Because, again, he was the man with a plan uh, he was going to hopefully deliver. Uh, so really, really fascinating. 
All right, guys, that's a good uh, spot to stop. Let me uh, stop the recording real quick.